you have to define what a school's purpose is. And so for ours, it's a place for kids to feel like they belong, that there's a home, there's a place that will be there consistently, that they feel safe. And so here are the different components that we believe that adults need to have in order to make this. Everything from how to have a classroom that is safe and inclusive to what are the celebrations you have at a regular cadence that kids can look forward to. And then kids need to know that their parents are welcome. Education Uncharted is a show from Propello, a K-12 teaching and learning platform that helps districts and teachers give every student a first-class learning experience. I'm your host, Amanda Bratton, exploring the stories of courageous educators that have broken out of the status quo to chart new paths and boldly innovate in the ever-changing landscape of education. Today's guest is Luma Mufle, the inspirational CEO and founding director of Fuji's Family Incorporated, a nonprofit organization that uses the power of soccer, education, and community to empower refugee children to successfully integrate into the United States. Luma is a 2016 top 10 CNN hero whose story has been featured on CBS Sunday Morning, ESPN, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Sports Illustrated, Forbes, and more. A lifelong social entrepreneur, Luma has created several programs and initiatives that have gainfully employed, educated, and empowered refugees and immigrants in her community and beyond, with the Fuji's Academy serving as a national model for refugee education. So, Luma, we're really glad to have you today. I'm wondering if you can just start off by sharing a little bit about your personal journey and what inspired you to dedicate your life to helping refugee students. I was born and raised in the Middle East, and I'm not in Jordan. My mom is Syrian. Dad is Jordanian. My grandmother would always joke that my top half is Syrian. My bottom half is Jordanian. My mom's family fled Syria in the 1960s. My grandmother was then three months pregnant with her sixth child. So she packed up a car, put all her kids in, and drove to neighboring Jordan. My grandfather at the time was like, no, it's just another attempted coup. It's going to blow over. And so he said he was going to stay. But he ended up joining them a month later after the government seized his factory and his brothers were tortured by the government. Mm. And so he came, they started from scratch, and it was a bordering country, right? So it's familiar language, same culture, similar faiths, but they still were identified as other. My grandmother always wanted us to remember who we were and connect with people who are experiencing something like that. So she actually took me to my first refugee camp at age eight. I grew up very privileged, affluent family. So it was really hard for me to walk into a camp and see people living in tents and dirty water and just so many people. And I didn't understand why she took me there. I didn't want to go. I was scared. I didn't want to interact with people that weren't like me. But she was very firm and wanted me to go play with the kids in the camp and told me that I should go play and that I should never think people are beneath me and that I have nothing to learn from others. That stuck with me. And when we were leaving, I had ended up playing with kids and played a soccer game, actually, find a commonality when you think you have nothing in common. And yeah, I told her, haram on us, haram on, meaning poor them. And she took the phrase back to me, like, no, haram, that we were sinning. So haram has multiple meanings, poor people, or I feel sorry for you. 
And she was like, don't feel sorry for them, believe in them. And that stuck with me. I didn't think it would stick with me for this long. I didn't think this is where I would end up. So fast forward, 18, I left Amman to go to college in America. A senior year of college, I ended up applying for asylum. So my friends were filling out applications for grad school and jobs. And here I was going on my asylum hearing five days after graduation. I'm gay, Arab, and Muslim. I joke about that, but in the Middle East, that's a crime. You can get the death penalty for it. So I knew from a very early age that I would not be able to be both or be my whole self, at least in Jordan. And so I applied for asylum five days after, was granted, and then was trying to figure out like my purpose and what I would do here, like all alone with no family, no country. Hopped around, was really lost for a number of years, and I ended up in the South. And I opened up a cafe at that point, was on my way to pick up authentic hummus and pita bread. And I made a wrong turn and I saw kids playing soccer outside in the streets and they were playing like the way I used to with my brothers and cousins. They had rocks set up as goals. They were arguing, no parents, barefoot. I'd been a volunteer coach at the local Y, had a soccer ball in my car, took it out. They wanted the ball. I wanted to play. And that's how it all started. I ended up starting a soccer team for those kids and then realized all the other things that they were dealing with. And that was back in 2004. How could that be an accident that all of these things happened, right? It really just sounds that life offered you all of these opportunities. We know that sparking change in education is not easy, that you fell upon these opportunities how that entrepreneurial mindset helped you to overcome some of the barriers or to overlook some of the barriers to drive the success that you are now finding with the Fuji's family? I think part of it is I didn't have a background in education. I'd taken some courses. Mm. I didn't go to American schools in America. I thought all schools in America are like my state department run school in Jordan very wrong about that. I still believe that this is what it should be like, and it could be like that. I don't do all with bureaucracy and red tape. I remember taking a walk with my mentor after college graduation, and he's like, you're incredible with kids. I see you in schools. If you want, I can get you a job in Deerfield or Exeter, but I know you don't want to work with those kind of kids. I was like, no, I don't. That was me. I don't want to work with anything like that. And he's like, you're never going to be able to handle bureaucracy at public education. And so it's like, all right, I think there's another way to do this. And I think for me, I was a soccer coach. And I remember this moment when I realized one of my players couldn't read. And he'd been in the country three years. My players had to give me their report cards to play. He had A's and B's. And I was like, you're getting A's and B's. And then realized like he was just being passed through the system with no expectation of him, no accountability for him. And so I did what I think any coach would have done. So I started a school for him and six of his classmates. I'm like, all right, we can do this. We can figure this out. So it was like six kids, a teacher in the church basement. I haggled the lease. He was landlord who I rented from. Like you get things done. I think part of it is the immigrant mindset. You find a way. You have this opportunity to live in this country and be free. You find ways to do the right thing. And so it started with six kids, grew. It was a zero tuition private school, raising money like 24 hours a day, you know, eating a lot of ramen, but you get it done. And then I had like this light bulb moment. I was talking to a board member of ours. He's an attorney. 
as time, like these things that were preventing us from being charter or getting funding and these laws that were in place. And it's like laws were meant to be changed. I was like, what? You can change the law? No way. Because in the Middle East, you can't change the law. King sets the law. No one has any say in it. So right. here I was like, no, you can't change the law. But it's like, no, you can actually change the law. And for me, if there is a problem, let's find a way to find a solution for it. Like roadblocks shouldn't stop you. It's just like another pause. How do you pivot? But don't compromise what you're doing and don't change to fit in. Because if you change to fit in, you're not going to make change. I think that is a really valuable thing to remember, especially for public school teachers and administrators who feel that there are so many blockers that they can never get anything done to remember that we're here for a purpose, that our purpose is to, to make educate kids. kids. Yes. Yep. And to find ways to unblock as much our job as the working students in a classroom or working with teachers. I mean, I remember when we launched our partnership with Bowling Green, Kentucky, my big push then, we need kindergarten teachers teaching these 11 to 13-year-old kids that don't know how to read. Middle and high school teachers don't not teach reading. They assume by the time you get to middle school, you should know how to read. And they're like, well, we can't. That's like a Kentucky thing. The first thing they could say is no. And they went and asked and they got it. That was very easy. Sometimes it takes a little bit more politics to do it. But just ask and explain the reasoning. And we should be pushing against it. Can't just say, well, this is the way Georgia does it. If it doesn't make sense, it doesn't mean it needs to stay there. And I wonder if you've seen through the pandemic and post-pandemic, some of these opportunities that we have say, I'm going to try flipping this switch in a different way, or I'm going to try to work a little bit differently. And I wonder what you think about, we had that opportunity to make some big change. And some people have said you know, that opportunity has passed now. And some people have said, yes, we have made change. And some people have said, no, that opportunity hasn't passed. But we still are in that space of change and movement where we can make some bigger differences and make some change in terms of policy and the way that we work within a school. I'm a blend of pessimist and optimist. I believe the pandemic should have brought us to our knees because it showed everything that was wrong with education, everything. And I was like, all right, we're going to start making changes. And we made some changes during the pandemic. Everybody was eligible for free lunch at school without documenting. And then we went back. No, mm. we got a document. Why? It showed we need. And then I was like, that's just stupid. Like, we lifted that. And then it's like, why are we going back to that? I still think, given the data we are seeing, there's opportunity for change. And it can't just come from the educator. Our politicians need to understand what is happening on the ground, and to have very practical solutions to achieve them. I really think that's why we ended up doing the work we did in Kentucky is because they knew things weren't working before the pandemic, that it's really not working, and they wanted a solution. And I've always said the worst thing we can do is go back to normal. We have such an opportunity to do some really awesome things. And the best thing we've come up with is high-dosage tutoring. I'm like, really? That's the best thing we have come up with is high dosage tutoring. But I think we saw a mass exodus of teachers leave after the pandemic. It really took its toll. I think we're going to see an exodus of some of the rebels and innovators because it's taken their toll on them. And that's going to be, I think, our biggest crisis is if the people that are pushing the limits and advocating for change are so exhausted and haven't been replenished. 
Do you think there's a solution to that? Obviously, it's not one answer, right? What do you think are some ways that we can try as a country, as a system, stop that before it's too late? I think a paid sabbatical, like three to six months where go heal, recharge, have some space to think so you're not drinking out of a fire hose. I would say this year for school leaders was harder than the pandemic and it shows no signs of easing up. You're dealing with staff shortages across the board from bus drivers to teachers, students disappearing. We don't know where they are. Are they in homeschool? Where are they? We have a large percentage of kids that never showed back up. And we have a lot of adults and kids that are hurting and they're just going through the motions. And school should be an exciting place to go because you're learning and you're being around your peers and you're playing. And we've lost that. We've lost sight of that. So we've lost so much. We've got to do all this academic makeup. Maybe so the answer is we should be playing more and singing more and creating arts. So what does that look like for you at your schools? How do you add that element of social and emotional support. So we have three structures in our schools that are essential. Each kid belongs to an academic cohort, a class that they're with that is on the same academic level and close in age. And then every kid is on a soccer team. So back to our roots, we all start a soccer team. Every kid plays. That's usually within a two-year age span and by gender. So they have this other group that they belong to. And then each kid is part of a house. Harry Potter style. She didn't invent it. So it was in English boarding schools as a structure to create mm-hmm. a place that felt like home. Spans all the age groups in your building. And there's ways for mentorship and playing and competition and peer accountability. And so for us, if kids have a hard day with their class, they've got their team in their house. Like there's always a social safety net and kids need these social safety nets. You know, we do a huddle and a check-in every morning with the kids, like question of the day. Sometimes it's funny and silly. Sometimes it's more deep. But for them to get to know each other, to be vulnerable, to be able to laugh and to know how to support each other. I think too often we only support when people are successful and feeling good. It's easy. It's really hard for us when someone's struggling. In our schedule, yoga, martial arts, soccer are part of the program. So every kid starts off their day with yoga or martial arts ends with soccer. There's a big physical component to our programming. And every kid has art and music at least three to four times a week. Each one, not once a week. So they get seven or eight of that. And part of it is those are other languages for expression. So for English language learners, you don't need to speak English to be good at them. And they build confidence and creativity and They're multi-sensory, so kids learn language a lot quicker in some of those classes as well. Our results this past year is every single one of our kids has made one year's gain in that year, which to me is like, that's the minimum, but over 70% of the kids made two plus years of gain. And it's because they feel safe and they show up to school. They're not like, I don't want to come in or I'm going to sleep all day. They want to be excited. So I tell people design for the kids, like walk in their shoes. Think about what your day would be like if you had to sit and just be drilled at all day. I wouldn't show up. And think about our brain works at its peak in increments. You can't have two to three hours of boring instruction, but like direct instruction, you need to break it up. 
And you need to feel success in your day. You have to be able to feel success and joy in your day. It sounds like that structure really supports the educators that are involved as well. It's not only a benefit to the kids who are coming to school. If you design for the client or for the customer, the people delivering it should be feeling that same support. It's not, oh, I have to convince you. It's like, no, they want to do it. And if the kids are happy and engaged, then the load on the teacher is easier. If there's high expectations around behavior and that we believe you can reach these goals, then there's buy-in. And you want your teachers to be excited to come in the building. And they feed off the energy of the kids. Yeah. And break it up. Have events. Have potlucks. Buy ice cream sandwiches at the end of the day right. and just let loose, right? It sounds like there's also this sense of community, not just within the school and with students and teachers, but also a broader community and some family engagement as well. I'm wondering how you have built that piece into the story of your schools that's supporting of students and their success. You have to define what a school's purpose is. And so for ours, it's a place for kids to feel like they belong that there's a home, there's a place that will be there consistently that they feel safe. In. And so here are the different components that we believe the adults need to have in order to make this. Everything from how to have a classroom that is safe and inclusive to what are the celebrations you have at a regular cadence that kids can look forward to. And then kids need to know that their parents are welcome. And for too many multilingual learners, their parents don't feel that. They don't understand the school system. They feel like the school system doesn't understand them. So for us, there's cultural liaisons or soccer coaches that are built into the staffing model. And they're the bridge. They're usually from the community. They're bilingual. And so they're the ones that can build that bridge to the school. When a new family's enrolled, they're the first contact at their homes. Like they go to their homes instead of bringing them to the school to explain it all. And here's some videos. Here's some pictures. Do you have any questions? And then principal or vice principal will go visit the family at their home. So here, this is who I am. We have WhatsApp groups. So the whole school's on a big WhatsApp group. And then the coaches have their own WhatsApp group that they communicate with. And sometimes it's just basically, hey, school's closed tomorrow or early dismissal, like a reminder. Sometimes it's sharing pictures. Sometimes it's, hey, we're having coffee or tea hour for parents. Come hang out with the principal and drink a cup of coffee. It's creating events that they want to come to. So there's the traditional events where the kids are performing or playing a soccer game that the families will want to come to. And then are there things that they want to learn about? So one of the things we're going to be doing this fall is navigating immigration. Here are some options for some of you that you may not know about and finding good partners to deliver that. How to open a bank account if you want to take out a loan for a mortgage, build credit, things that are very American, but if you're not American, very foreign concept. And they need to be able to know and trust the adults in that building and be able to come to them with anything. And that is by us extending ourselves. I know like in the background, I'm not pitching my book, but there's a children's book called Her Right Foot by Dave Eggers. And I never noticed this until I read the book, but the Statue of Liberty's right foot is lifted in motion. It's not standing, waiting for people to come to them, to her. She's going toward them. And that's what we tell our staff they have to do. It's like, if someone's in a new country, don't wait for them to come. To you go to them. We've done cookouts over the summer. Like, hey, let's just come and eat together. No pressure. 
let's break fast together. And so teaching adults that it's got to be a little different and it's all about relationships. These are pieces of advice that any district can employ. What other pieces of advice can schools and other educational institutions learn from the way that Fuji's family model has created this inclusive environment? What other things can schools and districts try to improve in maybe a pretty simple way for immigrant and marginalized students and families? We always talk about first impressions, right? If your first impression or your first experience is negative, that is what's going to stick with you. So someone coming to your building, they're a priority. You drop everything. You greet them. Learn a few phrases of hello. That's going to stick with someone who is terrified of what this new world and new country is bringing to them. Pair them up with a kid that's their own age, maybe with the same background, but at least a kid their own age that can give them a tour of the school, that can show them where the restroom is, how to walk through a lunch line, have it be more humane and walk through it. We need to stop seeing everything from our perspective and see it from the perspective of the kids we are educating. And it's really that simple. We'll have school districts like, we send all the email announcements and none of the parents respond. I was like, maybe the parents can't read. And they're like, what? So all the parents can't read in their own language. We send it out by video recording and then we follow up with a phone call. It takes a little bit more time, but if you want your parents to be engaged, you have to take that extra step. Absolutely. So I'm thinking about the language acquisition piece. You mentioned parents, but obviously for students as well. What strategies have you found that are effective in helping students succeed when they're coming in as a middle schooler or a high schooler and they have limited English? It's not rocket science. You start them at the beginning. If you don't know how to read, you need to learn foundational skills. You need to know the letters of the alphabet, the sounds that they make. You need to know the numbers, how to add and multiply. And you have to spend some time to make sure the foundations are good. Like I would never throw a kid into a game if they didn't know the basics of soccer. That would be setting them up for humiliation, for defeat, for embarrassment. And so take the time to teach that. They're eager to learn. They'll make those gains. Something like, no, it's silly. Kids don't like learning sounds. I'm like, well, if they've never learned the sounds, what's worse, putting them in a class where they just feel like they're mute and deaf? That's not a good place to be. And the thing is, once you have solid foundational skills, you soar. Once you learn how to read and you love it, you're never going to stop reading. But if you're not taught the right way, it is always going to be a struggle. And you don't want kids to like this hard. It's going to be hard. There's always going to be struggle. So a 13, 14-year-old coming in, they're placed in a class where they're learning letters of the alphabet, where they're learning phonics. And then it's like rapid acceleration. They make two to three years of gain in one year. Small classes. And it's everything that's in place, like all the different structures I spoke about that makes them want to come. And they're surrounded by other kids like them. There's no shame in being the beginner. If you went to China and wanted to learn Mandarin, they're not going to teach you at a college level. You have to learn how to pronounce letters and what they look like. That's how we learn language. And us, it's immersion. It's English only in the building. Yeah, every now and then, like, okay, we got to explain this. Kid literally just got here. You break it. But you have to be immersed in the language because if you're not, you're constantly defaulting to what you're comfortable in. 
But for the brain to rewire, you have to be immersed. My first language is Arabic. I started a lot younger, so six, seven years old. I started learning English at school, Arabic at home. And that's how it is. I mean, CIA does it that way. Middlebury College, which is like one of the top language schools in the country, does it that way. Immersion works. In any country, if you don't know the language, you're always going to be the outsider. You're always not going to know what to do. As you mentioned before, you've built a program where there are other languages besides a spoken or written language. Tell us a little bit more about the positive motivation that you've built through soccer and what that has done for your students throughout their experiences. We say English is our first language, soccer is our second language in the school, so everybody speaks it. It's universal. For a lot of our kids, that is a positive association with home. They used it to escape. They're playing with raggedy balls in camps or in streets. They're cheering on the World Cup, like 100 people in front of one TV. That is something they love, right? So find something that they love and have them engage in it. Practices are fun. They're rigorous and fun, just like how classrooms should be. Every kid is on a team. And so when you're on a team, it's not all on you. You can't win a soccer game with one star player. You need everybody to be solid and strong. And for us, if you don't pass, you don't play. Or if you have some pretty bad behavior incidences, you're not going to play that week. And your team is the one that's going to hold you accountable because you're letting them down. This is like a built-in structure where kids feel that they are needed and wanted by their peers, that they have something to contribute. And it's magical. Like You see kids who are like disengaged in class but might be the star soccer player all the other kids like, you need to get your work done. You need to not act up in class because we got a game to play and we need you. And then the kids that maybe are not as athletic, but are showing up and are consistent, then their value seeps into everyone else. So it's about showing up and being consistent. And then they ask for help from each other. Like you want to build it where you don't have to bear the burden of anything by yourself. It's a more Eastern approach where community can help the individual. And games and tournaments and everybody gets excited about it. Sports are a really good way to motivate and still discipline. We also have taught teachers to give feedback like a coach. Hey, you did this. These are ways you can change it. This is what I believe you can do. So let's do this one step to make it happen. And that's how they talk about their academics with them. They'll sit with them one-on-one. -on -one. You're here. We want to get you here. This is what you need to do in class and then on your own to get there. And they do it. I think for the first time, kids are now having conversations with adults about where they're really at. Hmm. And they're like, yes, I can do this. I understand I'm this low, but I know you believe in me and that I can get up there. And it really is a community of students together, just as much as it is a community of adults. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the adults in our school say this is the first time they felt like part of a team because that's how we build it. You're part of a team. You're in this together. You're working together. One teacher may be really good at reaching one kid, but then another teacher might be better. Doesn't mean you're not good. It means you've got someone else that can help you out. And they need to understand that teaching can be very isolating and it shouldn't be. You're all about the kids. Everybody's in it for the kids. Really important to remember and to think about ways that not only can educators and administrators 
help to build that community, but how can parents and other community members involve themselves in the local schools in a way that can foster community? Yes. Yeah. And so always think about what's best for kids. Like they've had speakers come in from immigrant backgrounds, talk about their experience and what it was like when they first got there. And the kids are laughing. They're like, oh, that was me. And then what? I can own a restaurant or I can work at this company. Like they need to see it. I mean, they even had the cafeteria staff ended up adding this whole shelf of spices that they knew the kids would love. And they're like, oh, they love it. We're going to just change some of our cooking because that's what they want. And it's like when you love someone, you're going to do the right thing for them. And that's what ends up happening. What advice do you have for educators and administrators who are really hungry to lead innovation within education, but maybe they're not sure where to start? So Amanda, like sports, arts, house system, it's not going to cost you an extra dollar. It's not going to cost you anything extra. And sports and the arts should not be accessible only by those whose parents can afford it or can stay after school. It should be built into your school day. Those are things that are essential to learning. Build them into your school day. Hire incredible music and art. Stop cutting those programs. Those are really simple ways to do it. Have a monthly competition. It doesn't all have to be athletic. Corporate movements. Those aren't like big dollar items. It's just the way you need to think about it. And you have to really change the law for a lot of that, right? Um, and then you need to advocate like, hey, there's so many things that are wrong, but find one that you can rally your team around and work together to push on that. Don't try to take it all on. If you try to take it, it's too much. So one chip at a time and then you'll break it and don't take no for an answer. I get told no like every single day over and over again. I'm going to come back to you at some point. That's awesome. I think it's easy to get put off by no. No can be so scary. Just the anticipation of the no. And if you can let that go. Let that go. When people tell me no, I'm like, why? Why are you telling me no? And if they explain it, then at least I know what I need to do. And sometimes they can't explain it. They'll be like, oh, because that's the way it is. I was like, that's not really an answer. Or we're not going to fund you. Well, why are you going to fund me? What's about us is not working for you? And sometimes maybe you're like, okay, maybe I'll get somebody better. Come alongside. But ask why you're getting that no. And then you know what you need to do. Luma, this has all been really helpful, but I want to know, when you first started your school, were you an expert? Are you an no. expert now? <laughs> no, no, I would say I'm always learning. I love learning. I love improving. Sure. I think that's part of my athletic mindset is like, you know, when I won championships, like, yep, what are we doing now? I remember I had one season where my team won everything and we had built three years to get to that point. The next year, I aged them up to eight so they could experience defeats, so they're not so arrogant. And so it's like, how do you keep pushing yourself to be better? I would say I know more than most on serving refugees and immigrants now. I've been doing this for close to 20 years. I used to think like it wasn't important. I'd like, oh, value the degrees and the experts and the researchers. But then there's some stuff that I know on a deeper level. I am also a good listener. I listen to my community. I visit with them. I spend time with them trying to understand what is weighing them down. How can we improve? But yeah, you're always going to be learning. And that's like the fun part of this. It's always changing. 
it's okay to make the mistakes, right? Because that's how we learn and become better at what we do. And it's okay to go out on that limb and ask for what you need. Try to eliminate those blockers. Because then you're never going to regret that. Saying, hey, I actually spoke up for what I believed in or I advocated for what I believed in. You're always going to question, should I have said that? I should have said something then. Like, no, say it. Well, it's been enlightening. And I think that we have a lot to learn from the mindset of somebody who is coming in with recognizing the needs of our students and not necessarily being a professional educator to begin with, I think sometimes can help you see things in a different way. And it's really valuable to be able to look at the work that you have done from those different viewpoints. So I appreciate it. One of my professors in college said innovation comes from those outside the field because they see things very differently. And so sometimes it's bringing in those that don't do it every day. How are they looking at it? And sometimes they come up with super simple solutions because they haven't been surrounded by something that doesn't work. Well, we thank you for your time and hoping that we can continue to stay in touch and follow you as you're continuing to grow your team and your family. Before we go, you have a new book that I think has just been released. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that before we go? Yeah, uh, the book was released uh, May 16th. It's called From Here. So my first book, Learning America, was the book I wish I had when I started this work. It's a very honest portrayal of the ups and downs, all the mistakes I made, because I think too often we don't read about some of the hard stuff, like leading social change. And then from here, it's a young adult book. It's a memoir of growing up gay and Muslim in the Middle East and the struggles. And that's the book I wish I had growing up where I felt like I was the only one. And I think teens and families across the country, geared towards ninth grade up, but I think a lot of adults will also benefit from reading it and a lot of educators about the intersection of identity and finding home and family and belonging and being true to yourself. We thank you for your work and can't wait to continue to see the work that you do with the Fugees and change in education in general. Thanks so much. Thank you. And that wraps up another incredible episode of Education Uncharted. Luma's unwavering commitment to keeping students at the center, even when it means changing laws or shifting the status quo, speaks to the potential that we all have in empowering our students. Luma's innovative yet familiar approach to education, focusing not just on academics, but also on building character, empathy, and life skills, is an inspiration for educators looking to drive change and propel education forward. Here are some of my takeaways from today's episode. Building community is key. Luma is the founder of Fuji's Family, a nonprofit school for immigrant and refugee youth. Since so many students are new to both the country and the English language, Luma and her team have been incredibly intentional about helping their students create social safety nets within the halls of the school. Every student belongs to a soccer team, a cohort, and a house that spans age groups. Even on hard days, every student has a community they can turn to for support. Next, 
Luma says, don't take no for an answer. When you're looking to create change, you can't take no for an answer, and you can't be afraid to ask for what you need to make things right. As Luma told us, roadblocks shouldn't stop you. Don't compromise what you're doing, and don't change to fit in, because if you change to fit in, you're not going to make change. Finally, keep your students at the heart. Luma talked about the need for educators to keep students at the heart. Rather than focusing on increasing instructional time, what we need to consider is what would actually cause a child to be excited to come to school? What would make them feel welcomed, included, needed? Luma stresses the need for us to focus less on learning loss and more on art, movement, and song. Create opportunities for each student to feel joy and find success within each day. I'm Amanda Bratton. For more conversations with bold educators exploring uncharted territory, click the link in the show notes or visit propello.com backslash learn to learn more.